Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 239 of Forgotten Classics, where we will be delving into various samples from a book I've been reading lately. First, however, the podcast highlight. This is a pretty new podcast. However, the title and the graphic grabbed me because they're on the front of the podcast page at iTunes. It is called Great Mustaches in History. And I have to say, when I looked at the episodes so far, which were General Ambrose Burnside and Salvador Dali, I thought, what excellent choices. But then I listened to the introduction and I was charmed. This is a podcast by a 10-year-old boy named Patrick. He's very well-spoken. He listens to some podcasts I can't believe, like Hardcore History, that sort of thing. And he wanted to do his own podcast. Now, this is probably not a podcast I'm going to continue listening to much, but he sets forth very well. He's done his research. He's got an introduction. He presents himself in the same way as any podcaster would. So if nothing else, go give Patrick a little hello. (laughs) Because I have to admire a kid who's going to do that. There's the future of podcasting right there. Now, I have been reading a book called American Food Writing, an anthology with classic recipes edited by Molly O'Neill. If you enjoy food writing, and obviously I do from the many samples I have shared with everyone here, this is possibly the most perfect anthology ever because for one thing, it's quite large. Let's see, it's got 743 pages when the index starts. But the thing that makes it really great is she is really covering American food from Thomas Jefferson to Willa Cather, if that's how you say her name, or Cather, to the Times-Picayune's Creole Cookbook, which that's New Orleans, y'all, George Washington Carver, MFK Fisher, John Steinbeck, Ogden Nash, Alice Waters, Daniel Pinkwater. Obviously, I'm jumping around here, but she's got everybody and the selections are really wonderful i'm just enjoying the heck out of it i tried to find some representative samples and i have four of them so very quickly i'm going to tell you about the people who wrote them just so i don't have to break into what i'm reading and these head notes are really wonderful they give you just enough to put you in the context i'm going to abbreviate very much from them, but they're mostly just about a paragraph. And that's where I'm getting this information. We will be hearing from Henry Ward Beecher. That name may sound familiar to longtime listeners of this podcast, of course. He is Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother. Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. We all went through that together and had quite a grand time with that classic book, which nobody remembers to read anymore except here (laughs) at Forgotten Classics. Now, Henry was probably one of the most celebrated preachers of his day, and when we hear his eloquence on the subject which I will be reading to you about, you will understand why. 
I will also be reading a little bit from Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings. She wrote The Yearling, and she lived down in Cross Creek, Florida, which was at that time quite wild, and she wrote a memoir about it, and then it was so popular that she wrote a book called Cross Creek Cookery. I will be reading just a snippet of that to you. We also have something from Evan Hunter. Evan Hunter wrote under a lot of different names. He was quite a well-known mystery writer. He wrote under the name of Ed McBain, a lot of American crime novels. He also wrote The Blackboard Jungle. He wrote the screenplay for The Birds. And we'll see. He enjoyed a little time in the kitchen. And last, but definitely not least from an American foodways point of view, we have Ray Kroc. A bit from his book, Grinding It Out, The Making of McDonald's. So I think you can see we have quite a cross-section. Well, let's not waste any more time. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. Apple Pie by Henry Ward Beecher How often people use language without the slightest sense of its deep interior meaning. Thus, no phrase is more carelessly or frequently used than the saying, Apple pie order. How few who say so reflect at the time upon either apple pie or the true order of apple pie. Perhaps they have been reared without instruction. They may have been born in families that were ignorant of apple pie or who were left to the guilt of calling two tough pieces of half-cooked dough with a thin streak of macerated dried apple between them, of leather color, and of taste and texture not unbecoming the same, an apple pie. But from such profound degradation of ideas, we turn away with gratitude and humility that one so unworthy as we should have been reared to do better things. We are also affected with a sense of regret for duty unperformed. For great as have been the benefits received, we have never yet celebrated as we ought the merits of apple pie. That reflection shall no longer cast its shadow upon us. Henry, go down cellar and bring me up some Spitzenbergs. The cellar was as large as the whole house, and the house was as broad as a small pyramid. The north side was windowless and banked up outside with frost-defying tan bark. The south side had windows, festooned and frescoed with the webs of spiders that wove their tapestries over every corner in the neighborhood, and when no flies were to be had, ate up each other as if they were nothing but politicians, instead of being lawful and honorable arachnidae. On the east side stood a row of cider barrels, for twelve or twenty barrels of cider were a fit provision for the year, and what was not consumed for drink was expected duly to turn into vinegar, and then was exalted to certain hogsheads kept for the purpose. But along the middle of the cellar were the apple bins, and when the season had been propitious, there were stores and heaps of russets, greenings, seek no furthers, pear mains, gilliflowers, spitzenbergs, and many besides, nameless, but not virtueless. Thence selecting, we duly brought up the apples. Some people think anything will do for pies, but the best for eating are the best for cooking. Who would make jelly of any other apple that had the porter? 
who would bake or roast any other sweet apple that had the lady's sweeting, unless, perhaps, the Talman sweet, or who would put into a pie any apple but Spitzenberg that had that? Off with their jackets, fill the great wooden bowl with the sound rogues, and now, O cook, which shall it be? For at this point the roads diverge, and though they all come back at length to apple pie, it is not a matter of indifference which you choose. There is, for example, one made without undercrust, in a deep plate, and the apples laid in in full quarters, or the apples being stewed or beaten to a mush and seasoned and put between the double paste, or they are sliced thin and cooked entirely within the covers, or they are put without seasoning into their bed, and when baked, the upper lid is raised, and the butter, nutmeg, cinnamon, and sugar are added, the whole well mixed, and the crust returned as if nothing had happened. But, oh, be careful of the paste. Let it not be like putty, nor rush to the other extreme and make it so flaky that one holds his breath while eating for fear of blowing it all away. Let it not be plain as bread, nor yet rich like cake. Aim at that glorious medium in which it is tender without being fugaciously flaky, short without being too short, a mild, sapid, brittle thing that lies upon the tongue so as to let the apples strike through and touch the papillae with a mere effluent flavor. But this, like all high art, must be a thing of inspiration or instinct. A true cook will understand us, and we care not if others do not. Do not suppose that we limit the apple pie to the kinds and methods enumerated. Its capacity and variation is endless, and every diversity discovers some new charm or flavor. It will accept almost any flavor of every spice. And yet nothing is so fatal to the rare and higher graces of apple pie as inconsiderate, vulgar spicing. It is not meant to be a mere vehicle for the exhibition of these spices in their own natures. It is a glorious unity in which sugar gives up its nature as sugar, and butter ceases to be butter, and each flavorsome spice gladly evanishes from its own full nature, that all of them, by a common death, may rise into the new life of apple pie. Not that apple is longer apple. It, too, is transformed. And the final pie, though born of apple, sugar, butter, nutmeg, cinnamon, lemon, is like none of these, but the compound ideal of them all, refined, purified, and by fire fixed in blissful perfection. But all exquisite creations are short-lived. The natural term of an apple pie is but twelve hours. It reaches its highest state about one hour after it comes from the oven, and just before its natural heat has quite departed. But every hour afterward is the declension, and after it is one day old, it is thenceforward but the ghastly corpse of apple pie. But while it is yet fluorescent, white or creamy yellow, with the merest drip of candied juice along the edges, as if the flavor were so good to itself that its own lips watered, of a mild and modest warmth, the sugar suggesting jelly, yet not jellied, the morsels of apple neither dissolved, nor yet in original substance, but hanging, as it were, in a trance between the spirit and the flesh of applehood. Then, 
when dinner is to be served at five o'clock and you are pivoted on the hour of one with a ravening appetite, let the good dame bring forth for luncheon an apple pie, with cheese a year old, crumbling and yet moist, but not with base fluid, but oily rather. Then, O oh blessed man, favored by all the divinities, eat, give thanks, and go forth in apple pie order. Pancakes by Evan Hunter You have to understand pancakes. If you call them griddle cakes or flapjacks, you don't understand them and you might just as well forget ever trying to make them. Griddle cakes are made in restaurants that have shiny aluminum stoves and fake chefs in big white pastry hats. They have nothing whatever to do with pancakes, which are made in people's kitchens. Flapjacks are made by gold prospectors in little wooden shacks in grade B movies. They also have nothing at all to do with pancakes. If you don't understand the distinction, then you won't understand pancakes either. All is lost, and you should buy yourself a waffle iron. You don't cook pancakes, you make them. You don't say, I think I'll cook some pancakes this morning. You always say, I think I'll make some pancakes this morning. In fact, you never say that either because there's only one time to make pancakes and that's on Sunday morning. And you don't have to think you'll make them. You know you'll make them. That is, if you understand them. If you understand pancakes, you instinctively know they are irrevocably linked to Sunday morning and sleeping late and people in robes with sleep around the edges of their eyes and dopey sleep smiles on their mouths as they suggest, why don't you make some pancakes? You'd make them anyway. This is Sunday morning. Here's how you make them. You buy yourself any one of the commercial mixes. Get yourself a big mixing bowl, a tablespoon, and a cup and spread these out on the table. Now put the box where you can read the recipe. Sometimes if you leave the box open after using it, you'll find cereal bugs in it the next time you try making pancakes. It's best to put the prepared mix in a container of some kind, but be sure to cut the recipe off the back of the box or next time you won't know what you're doing. The only change I make in the prepared mix recipe is to pour in about half a cup of heavy cream, which I find gives the pancakes a richer taste and texture. Aside from that, pancakes shouldn't be tampered with. Don't go dropping diced apples into the batter or blueberries because then you're not making pancakes anymore. You're baking muffins or cakes. Don't serve pancakes in any fancy way like putting ice cream on them, or fruit, or brandy, or whipped cream. Just put a generous lump of butter on top of each pancake in the stack, and then liberally pour either syrup or molasses over them. It isn't advisable to put more than four pancakes in a stack. Excessive depth makes them difficult to cut, and difficult to handle on the fork. If you put four in a stack, you can serve two people while your next batch is on the griddle. Pancakes don't encourage simultaneous serving, but there is a lively overlap and, as a result, a built-in anticipation, especially when children are sitting at the table waiting to be served. The cook always gets served last, or, when the pancakes are especially successful, not at all. That doesn't matter. What does matter is that everyone be in the kitchen while the pancakes are being made. It's important to joke a little with the cook and to hear the coffee bubbling on the stove and to smell the good heat-containing aroma of the sizzling round patties as they're taken from the griddle and carried to the table. It's important that there be laughter in that kitchen and warmth. You have to understand pancakes.
Cross Creek Cookery by Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings I disremember, as we say at the creek, just when I began shooting chickens for the table. They were my own chickens. They were and are game chickens. The breed suits me to a tee because I like to see them running loose instead of cooped up in a pen. They are decorative. They take care of themselves except for scratch feed night and morning. They roost in the orange trees, from which the handsome bronze and red rooster assists the coming of the dawn, and they make frying-sized chickens with large meaty breasts earlier than any other breed. <laughs> but they are wild as hawks. When there is a man working on the place or small pickaninnies visiting, it is rather a lark to run one down for the pot. Spectators cheer. But a hot summer day found old Martha and me alone with company coming, and we ran chickens until we dropped from exhaustion and never touched a feather. I remember that in Alaska my brother and I shot ruffled grouse with rifles, for the birds would not stir from their perches in distant trees across thick ravines, and once moved to action were gone instantly behind impenetrable Alaskan foliage, so that a wing shot was out of the question. We needed the meat, and it was entirely sporting and made a difficult long shot to use a rifle and aim for the head or neck. When I got back my breath, I loaded my twenty-two rifle and potted the necessary broilers through the heads. Came a day when, from too frequent shooting, I had only to appear in the yard with my twenty-two to have every chicken on the place scatter for the distant woods. I stalked like a panther. When I came within range, the young rooster I was after moved his head every time I fired. A dignified professor and his haughty wife were coming for dinner. I was desperate. I returned to the house for my shotgun and ignominiously, violating all rules of sportsmanship, brought down my bird. Dinner went off nicely, and the professor's grave face brightened as he bit into the succulent breast of chicken, pan-browned and oven-baked in sherry. There was a grinding noise. The professor blanched, and he removed his mouthful of chicken breast and poked at it with his fork. Two little lead pellets rolled to the plate. If it had been one little lead pellet, I should have insinuated that he best consult his dentist. There were two. It was one of the cowardly moments in my life. I rang for more wine and asked the professor's opinion on James Joyce. There are simply people to whom one can explain that one shoots chickens for the table and people to whom one cannot. I once even prepared, lacking game, a piece of beef in this manner. The occasion irks me still. My friend Phil May asked to bring his friend Wallace Stevens, the poet, to dinner at Cross Creek. Great man was on a strict diet, he wrote, and must be served only lean meat, a green salad, and fruit. I planned my best baked-in-sherry ham for the rest of the company and racked my brains for a method of making lean meat a delicacy. I decided to prepare the heart of a Boston pot roast of beef in an individual casserole with sherry. The poet proved delightful but condescending. He began on his beef, looked over at the clove-struck ham, and announced that he would partake not only of that, but of all the other rich dishes on the table. His diet, it seemed, was not for purposes of health, but for vanity. He was, simply, reducing. I snatched his sherried beef from him, pulled out the bone, 
and tossed it on the hearth to my pointer dog. Bear meat. Bears, once so plentiful in Florida that before 1792 William Bertram wrote, There are still far too many bears in Florida, are becoming scarce. I see no reason for destroying the remaining ones, since they live so far from any domestic clearing that they are no longer a menace, as formerly, to stock. But I must admit that bear meat at the proper season and properly cooked is a delicious meat. A male bear in the mating season, like a boar hog, is not fit to eat. A female nursing bear not only has tough and stringy meat, but for humanitarian reasons should never be destroyed. A young male bear in the off-season provides meat better than the best beef. I should happily settle for a stupid steer, but on the occasions when I have had bear meat in the big scrub of Florida, I have enjoyed it thoroughly. Alligator Tail Steak Rattlesnake meat is canned commercially in Florida and is served as a delicate hors d'oeuvre. I have never tried it and do not intend to. It is said to taste much like canned tuna. Chacun a son goût. Bartram wrote in his famous travels that Governor Grant of Florida had a passion for rattlesnake meat, if the snake had not bit himself. But Bartram, as I should have done, tasted of the meat but could not swallow it. Steak from the tail of an alligator is another matter. It is truly delicious. It is like liver or veal, which it resembles in texture and coloring, in that it must be cooked very quickly or a very long time. In between, it toughens. Cut strips lengthwise of the tail, four inches long and two inches wide, or cut cross sections between the vertebrae. Roll in salted and peppered flour and fry quickly in butter. It may also be browned in the butter, hot water, and the juice of a lemon added, and simmered for two to two and one-half hours until tender. A woman wrote me from Mississippi that she and her twelve-year-old son, a great hunter, had read my chapter on foods in Cross Creek. A few days later, the young man came on an eight-foot alligator in a Mississippi swamp and horrified her by dragging it home for her to cook the tail. She wrote that at the moment she was torn between attempting it and burying the alligator to face her young son's wrath. Grinding It Out, The Making of McDonald's by Ray Kroc Some of my detractors, and I've acquired a few over the years, say that my penchant for experimenting with new menu items is a foolish indulgence. They contend that it stems from my never having outgrown my drummer's desire to have something new to sell. McDonald's is in the hamburger business. They say, how can Croc even consider serving chicken? Or, why change a winning combination? Of course, it's not difficult to demonstrate how much our menu has changed over the years, and nobody could argue with the success of additions such as the filet fish the Big Mac, the hot apple pie, and Egg McMuffin. The most interesting thing to me about these items is that each evolved from an idea of one of our operators. So the company has benefited from the ingenuity of its small businessmen while they were being helped by the system's image and our cooperative advertising muscle. This, to my way of thinking, is the perfect example of capitalism in action. Competition was the catalyst for each of the new items. Lou Groen came up with the filet fish to help him in his battle against the big boy chain in the Catholic parishes of Cincinnati. 
The Big Mac resulted from our need for a larger sandwich to compete against Burger King and a variety of specialty shop concoctions. The idea for Big Mac was originated by Jim Delaghetti in Pittsburgh. Harold Rosen, our operator in Enfield, Connecticut, invented our special St. Patrick's Day drink, the Shamrock Shake. It takes a guy with a name like Rosen to think up an Irish drink, Harold told me. He wasn't kidding. You may be right, I said. It takes a guy with a name like Croc to come up with a Hawaiian sandwich. Hula Burger! He didn't say anything. He didn't know whether I was kidding or not. Operators aren't the only ones who come up with creative ideas for our menu. My old friend Dave Wallerstein, who was the head of the Balaban and Katz movie chain and has a great flair for merchandising, he's the man who put the original snack bars in Disneyland for Walt Disney, is an outside director of McDonald's, and he's the one who came up with the idea for our large order of fries. He said he loved the fries, but the small bag wasn't enough and he didn't want to buy two. So we kicked it around, and he finally talked us into testing the larger size in a store near his home in Chicago. They have a window in that store that they now call the Wallerstein window, because every time the manager or a crew person would look up, there would be Dave peering in to see how the large size fries were selling. He needn't have worried. The large order took off like a rocket, and it's now one of our best-selling items. Dave really puts his heart into his job as a director now that he's retired and has plenty of time. There's nothing he likes more than traveling with me to check out stores. Our hot apple pie came after a long search for a McDonald's kind of dessert. I felt we had to have a dessert to round out our menu, but finding a dessert item that would readily fit into our production system and gain wide acceptance was a problem. I thought I had the answer in a strawberry shortcake, but it sold well for only a short time and then slowed to nothing. I had high hopes for pound cake, too, but it lacked glamour. We needed something we could romance in advertising. I was ready to give up when Lytton Cochran suggested we tried fried pie, which he said is an old Southern favorite. The rest, of course, is fast food history. Hot apple pie and later hot cherry pie has that special quality, that classiness in a finger food that made it perfect for McDonald's. The pies added significantly to our sales and revenues. They also created a whole new industry for producing the filled frozen shells and supplying them to our stores. During the Christmas holidays in 1972, I happened to be visiting in Santa Barbara, and I got a call from Herb Peterson, our operator there, who said he had something to show me. He wouldn't give me a clue as to what it was. He didn't want me to reject it out of hand, which I might have done, because it was a crazy idea a breakfast sandwich. It consisted of an egg that had been formed in a Teflon circle with the yolk broken and was dressed with a slice of cheese and a slice of grilled Canadian bacon. This was served open face on a toasted and buttered English muffin. I boggled a bit at the presentation, but then I tasted it and I was sold. Wow, I wanted to put this item into all our stores immediately. Realistically, of course, that was impossible. It took us nearly three years to get the egg sandwich fully integrated into our system. Fred Turner's wife, Patty, came up with the name that helped make it an immediate hit, Egg McMuffin. The advent of Egg McMuffin opened up a whole new area of potential business for McDonald's, the breakfast trade. We went after it like the sixth fleet going into action. 
It was exhilarating to see the combined forces of our research and development people, our marketing and advertising experts, and our operations and supply specialists, all concentrating on creating a program for catering to the breakfast trade. There were a great many problems to overcome. Some of them were new to us because we were dealing with new kinds of products. Pancakes, for example, have to be offered if you intend to promote a complete breakfast menu. But they have an extremely short holding time, and this forced us to devise a procedure for cooking to order during periods of low customer count. Our food assembly lines, so swift and efficient for turning out hamburgers and french fries, had to be geared down and realigned to produce items for the breakfast trade. Then, after all the planning and all the working out of supply and production problems, it remained for the individual operator to figure out whether to adopt breakfast in his store. It meant longer hours for him, of course, and he'd probably have to hire more crew members and give the ones he had additional training. Consequently, the breakfast program is growing at a very moderate rate. But I can see it catching on across the country, and I can visualize extensions for a lot of stores, such as brunch on Sunday. I keep a number of experimental menu additions in the works all the time. Some of them now being tested in selected stores may find their way into general use. Others, for a variety of reasons, will never make it. We have a complete test kitchen and experimental lab on my ranch where all of our products are tested. This is in addition to the creative facility in Oak Brook. Fred Turner has a tendency to look askance at any new menu items. He'll usually try to put them down with some wisecrack, such as, That may be all right, but when are we going to start serving grilled bananas? We could put a little container of maple syrup on the side, and maybe for dinner we could serve them flaming. Such sarcasm doesn't bother me. I know Fred's thinking, and I respect it. He doesn't want us going hog-wild with new items. We aren't going to, but we are going to stay flexible and change as the market demands it. There are some things we can do and maintain our identity, and there are others we could never do. For example, it's entirely possible that one day we might have pizza. On the other hand, there's a damned good reason we should never have hot dogs. There's no telling what's inside a hot dog skin, and our standard of quality just wouldn't permit that kind of item. So there you have it. Those snippets did seem kind of snippety, didn't they? I was reading most of what was there, but these just aren't pieces that are really that long for the most part, which is what makes it interesting to see all the different things that get covered in the name of food writing. I do want to say I have to agree with Henry Ford Beecher that Spitzenbergs are some of the most delicious apples ever. I used to buy apples from a specialty apple place. Yes, that's the kind of person I am. I would have them shipped to me every year and they were so good. Oh my gosh. You know, it used to be that there were all different kinds of apples available to everyone. I go to a grocery store that specializes in having always at least, I would say, about 10 to 12 different kinds of apples. But in the autumn, when they get in some of these antique apples and they get in all these different apples, it really, you just walk into that section of the store and it smells wonderful. And there's such a variety. And I will say, if you ever get a chance to have a mutsu, that's a um, Japanese kind, M-U-T-S-U, really wonderful apples. I'm just saying. 
The other thing that really struck me when I was listening to this and proofing it was Ray Kroc's just enthusiasm for what he did. You know, these days, fast food has such a bad name. That book was written in 1972, and he was talking about something where he was a real pioneer. You know, they weren't worried about a lot of the things that they're worried about today with health and this and that, and people ate more sensible portions, although evidently not all the time. I guess sometimes they just buy two small fries. <laughs> but but there just wasn't the same emphasis on food and fast food in the way that there is now. People didn't think of it the same way. It's just the same way they drank and smoked and everything else. They didn't kind of worry about what everybody else was doing so much. I kind of miss that sometimes, as I've said. But anyway, so what I was able to really enjoy out of this was him just marveling at the reasons people came up with these ideas for these specialty items and how well a lot of them fit into the system that they were using. I just really found it fun to think about. So there you have it. It's a really wonderful kind of book to try. If you like food writing, there is something for everyone. That is really literally the tip of the iceberg. Speaking of the tip of the iceberg, (laughs) we had a huge ice storm last night. And I wasn't sure my power would even be on today. But luckily for me, it is. The city is essentially shut down and It really does look to me as if it's thawing out there because it's afternoon now. But I understand there's another ice storm coming in tonight. And that one's going to be the second solid layer of ice. So it's kind of back to the good old days when Dallas used to have a lot of ice storms during the winter. They haven't done that for a while, so everybody looks at it and says, Ah, global warming or climate change or whatever you want to call it these days is changing everything. No, that was just a warm cycle. Now we're back to the usual, or at least what I know of as the usual. And I kind of like it. It's that wintry mix that makes me feel like the holidays are really coming. When it's warm all the time, it's hard for me to get the mood. So, thinking of food, I am going to go make some cookies. I hope everybody has a great week. I hope they're all in the holiday mood. And if you're iced in by a big storm, I hope you have power. (laughs) As always, thank you for coming by to listen, because otherwise I wouldn't read these out loud, and I have a great time doing it. Have a great week, everyone. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.